Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Vasilega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist Section here at ASHP, and thanks so much for joining. I'm excited to share that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2022 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting that focuses on best practices and actionable steps that you can use in your practice to make meaningful changes towards more equitable, diverse, and inclusive teams and organizations. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So racism doesn't just stop with, or it's, it's not just the beliefs that we have, but it's when those beliefs become actions. But then they can go ahead and they can impact individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups. So those consistent interactions or the consistency of, of racism really being just the basis of interactions that individuals have can cause chronic stress. Well, that chronic stress, and we're all pharmacists here, we're scientists, we know that it can cause a cortisol release. Well, we think about just that consistent release of those mediators. Well, now that can increase just the disproportion and chronic illnesses that we see across racially and ethnically minoritized groups. So we end up in this place that racism continues to really just impact individuals, but then also we start to see its impact and its influence on different social determinants of health, which then looks like health inequity, right? So health inequities are really just, it's a very interesting dynamic. And it's one that I really have to explain because I always get that question of, well, how is health inequity different from health inequality? When we think about just inequality or health inequality anyway, it's differences in, in the health of individuals, and that can be due to, a num to numerous factors. Let's think about if an individual um, that's 80-year-old and we want to compare their health to an individual that's 20-year-old, that's 20 years old. Well, that individual that's 80 years old is likely not gonna be in a similar health condition than an individual that's 20 years old, like just realistically thinking. Let's think about these individuals as being, as being healthy, like let's not attach, let's not be pharmacists and attach other factors there. But generally, that 20-year-old is gonna just, it's gonna be an imbalance there because the 20-year-old has less time, has less exposure to different comorbidities, so on and so forth, likely to have less comorbidities. But we think about health inequity. Well, then that becomes a factor of just systemic and avoidable circumstances that contribute to lesser health. So I like to think about this, and I think a surest way, and we just saw the maternal health report that came out just yesterday, and it showed us that individuals that are racially and ethnically minoritized are more likely to suffer maternal health issues and fetal, and to um, suffer fetal health issues, and that being due to the fact of systemic practices. So we think about, for instance, black women. Black women are often less likely to be able to, to pursue more education. Due to them not being able to pursue more education, well now we end up in a place where they now don't have as much access to insurance. Well we know that we need insurance to receive proper prenatal care. So now we enter just this circle of inequity. And then we think about just inequity from the standpoint of COVID-19, right? We think about education. So individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups in this entirety are less likely to pursue extended education or higher education. Well, due to, this, due to the lesser education, now they're stuck in these occupations that are paid hourly or that, that may not have 
excuse me, that are paid hourly or may not have access to insurance. So now that they don't have insurance, now they don't have access to health care. So now they end up in that predicament where they're not able to receive vaccinations, they're not able to receive access to other preventive medications for COVID-19. So what we can say and what we can see is that racism is independently associated with these social determinants of health. So we talked about how it, how it attributes to lesser education. Well then that lesser education, now we're confined to lower socioeconomic statuses. Because of that, we're now confined to less access to health services. And, or, and then we know if you have less access to health services, less access to healthcare providers, well then now we don't have good health behaviors. And then we end up in this place where we have poor health outcomes. So very important that we really think about just the context of racism, how it is that it interacts in the intersections with healthcare, and, what it, and how it is that it would contribute to vaccine health hesitancy. Because when we talk about vaccine hesitancy, like I said, we want to go back and we want to do a root cause analysis because once again, we're pharmacists. I don't know about you all, but I'm a very methodical thinker in that way. So we want to do that root cause. We really want to see where that is. And now we end up at historical vaccine hesitancy. So vaccine hesitancy in itself refers to that delay in the acceptance or refusal of vaccinations. So then the vaccine hesitancy, when we think about different um, individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups, well, we have several instances, several instances where these individuals have been mistreated by the United States healthcare system. So that can be that basis of just being hesitant to receive a vaccine. But even we have these contemporary factors when individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups engage in, re in receiving healthcare services. We have several studies that have shown that these individuals feel as though they are being stereotyped type. They're being stigmatized. They're not receiving adequate care. But then we also have to start thinking about racial concordance. How is it that racial concordance can contribute to an increase in the uptake of health care? Well, then we go back to the social determinants of health, right? Individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups are less likely to pursue higher education. And I'll even bring it back and make it more relative. When we think about pharmacy in itself, black individuals, Hispanic individuals, American Indian individuals are less likely to be represented amongst these positions. So now we end up in this place where we don't have racial concordance, but we still have these historical and contemporary reasons as to why individuals may not want to receive these vaccines. And then when we see just that historical vaccine hesitancy, well now we have to think about, well how do we, how do we really see this in just reality? What does the CDC report? What are the, what are the numbers that are associated? Well, let's think about this in the context of influenza vaccines. Black individuals, Latino, Latinx, Native American individuals are 50% less likely to receive vaccines for influenza. Due to this, they are, more, they are more represented amongst those that are hospitalized. They are more represented amongst those that end up dying from a preventable infectious disease. This is preventable, right? We have these influenza vaccines. But because of that decrease in that uptake, now we see certain disparities that will be exacerbated. So additional barriers, however, do exist. So in concert with this vaccine hesitancy, so we know we have the vaccine hesitancy, but that's not the overall root of why we see less uptake. So other barriers that can, that can exist when we consider vaccine uptake is that barrier to accessibility. 
So it may be harder to know where to find the vaccines. It may be harder to get to these places where there are vaccines. When we think about healthcare providers shortages, we think about the fact that they are more likely to exist in areas of lower socioeconomic status. We're referring back to our chart and referring back to just this circle of inequity that we get to, individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups are more likely to live in these areas that experience these shortages. Access to a pharmacy or somewhere where they can receive the vaccines can be up to 30 miles. When we think about technology, being able to, one, locate the areas where the vaccines are provided or even the oral antivirals, when we think about the executive order for pharmacists to be able to provide those, it can be hard to find out where it is that they can go for that. Being able to um, locate sign-up sheets or sign-up sign up places for these vaccines can be a limitation as individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups are less likely to have access to different modes of technology, that being Wi-Fi, that being cell phones themselves. Or because of when we think about housing practices, individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups are more likely to experience housing segregation. Well, because of this, they're oftentimes forced to live in rural settings. Well, because of them living in these rural settings, we know that rural settings are more likely to not have access to internet, to have these technology barriers. Transportation, individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups. We talked about the, the inequity in the socioeconomic status, so then we can consider that these individuals will be less likely to have a car. They're more likely to, re to rely on modes of mass transit. Well, if you're being pushed out of your housing, how is, and you're living in these rural locations, do these locations usually have mass transit? Likely not. So now it's harder for these individuals to be able to go and receive these healthcare services. And then we have the language limitations. I can say myself, I'm a contributor to this barrier. I speak one language. So when you have individuals that are Hispanic or that may be Spanish speaking or other, other languages, and you have individuals that are in place here that do not speak them, well, that's a limitation. So we have to consider all of these things in concert with the vaccine hesitancy when we really think about vaccine promotion. How can we combat all of these different variables? So then we end up in this place of, well, what does vaccine equity look like? And I really love this picture here is from the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Beautiful photograph. I feel that really one explains the differences between equality and equity. And I, I'm a picture person, so I'm a person that learns from photographs. But then it also, I feel like, puts into context and makes it easy for us to extrapolate, well, what is it that vaccine equity will look like? So when we think about just equality, and remember how I explained equalities and its difference in equity, we can see that everyone in that photograph, in that top part of that picture, everyone has a bicycle, right? So the individual that's in the wheelchair, can they ride the bicycle? No, but it's there, sitting right next to the wheelchair. We see the individual that's taller, kind of hunched over that bicycle. We see the one in the center, they're probably the one that is benefiting from this bicycle the most, but then everyone else, and we can see this picture on the, on the last photograph, the person is really struggling to ride that, that bicycle. So we can see here, every single person has a bicycle, but it may not be that they're able to adequately use it. It may not be that it, that it provides benefit to them. So when we think about equity, it's making that benefit our priority for, across the board. So we see the individual that was once in this bicycle, now they have this bicycle, oh, excuse me, that was once in this wheelchair, now we see that bicycle being fitted to their needs, and then so on and so forth. 
So when we think about this from the vaccine standpoint, we want to make sure that the vaccines are, while right now we can say that the vaccines are nationally available, right? So everyone can receive a vaccine. We have a surplus even of vaccines. So everyone, if they wanted a vaccine, technically they, re they could receive it. But then it becomes that, that second factor of thinking, well, can they actually receive this vaccine? Is it being placed in a way that is comfortable for them, that everyone can go and, and get this vaccine if they would like it? So if we're thinking about it from the transportation standpoint, do we have vaccine modes that are set up that are easy for individuals to get to? When we think about the technology standpoint, are we creating ways to where people won't have to use technology to sign up for them? And then so on and so forth. So when we think about just pharmacists and the COVID-19 response, Pharmacists have been so integral to how it is globally that we have respond, responded to COVID-19. When we think about those individuals that have been included in the COVID-19 management guidelines, when we think about the providers of the oral antiviral therapies, and I think that this has just been a beautiful representation of just showing, showing what it is that pharmacists can do when we collaborate, put our minds together, and we really band together to combat something of extreme importance, which is here, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So more than 60 million COVID-19 vaccines have, have been provided by pharmacists, more than 60 million. And I wanna put this into even more perspective. Pharmacists have provided more vaccines than any other healthcare provider. So if you all aren't clapping, I, I think that deserves a clap. When I saw that information provided, I think that's amazing. And that just goes to show just the power of our, of our um, profession, but also our importance in ensuring that everyone can receive these vaccines. But when I saw this report, I was blown away that pharmacists had that much impact, provided more vaccines than any other healthcare provider. But the increasing rate of healthcare provider shortages, once again, just goes to show, and it's really just creating that placement for pharmacists. Well, we always knew the placement was there, right? But it's creating that placement for the general public to see pharmacists are important. They can fill these gaps, and most, more importantly, we are leaders in vaccination. So it's important that we are there. And we think about just pharmacists in terms of mitigating COVID-19 vaccination inequity. So within racially and ethnically minoritized groups, well, pharmacists have been so important in various different ways. The biggest way being educating patients on vaccine safety and effectiveness, developing accessible models for patients to receive vaccines. And I'll even take it a step further, sitting on national boards and ensuring that representation was present within these clinical trials. I don't know if anyone knows and maybe this starts as an additional educational moment, Moderna actually stopped their clinical trial to ensure that they could enroll more racially and ethnically minoritized individuals to make sure that they had adequate representation across the board there. Well, who is it that's making this, who is it that's making these um, comments or addressing these particular concerns of these groups? It's because pharmacists and other representative individuals are present there. I will say that pharmacists sat on the National Medical Association board where they actually met and talked about the clinical trials and they were able to provide input there. So essential, this is actually um, published in the um, APHA journal where they describe the experiences there by the National Pharmaceutical Association. Very, very essential and a big place where pharmacists have been. And then also just engaging faith and community leaders to optimize vaccine access in these communities. I think the biggest thing is identifying that we as healthcare providers, pharmacists are like, we're not the sole individuals that, ind that people rely on for trusted information. And I think another big thing is identifying that at the end of the day, we talked about the issue with racial concordance, right? At the end, at, when we think about just the, the landscape of medicine and pharmacy 
see racial concordance is not something that we have now, but we know that it's important for the uptake of different healthcare healthcare things and elements. So it's important that we start to train and we identify other individuals that we could put into place for this. And I think that pharmacists have been very essential here. So the pharmacist's role in increasing vaccination rates, I like to separate this into four different areas because I think that we know pharmacists have a role there, but it's really knowing how to cultivate and really lift ourselves up in these roles. So I like to start with cultural competency education, advocacy, and then finally we'll end with action. So cultural competency is really just defined as knowing that every individual has different cultural capacities, they have different traits, that everything is different for every single person. Thus, we have to make sure that when we describe vaccine uptake or vaccine hesitancy, that we tailor it in a fashion in which these individuals can receive it, but then also that we acknowledge that there are factors as to why individuals may be slow to wanting to receive the vaccines. And we have to be very empathetic in, in that regard when we're considering that. But then also, we have to think about what does it take for us to make a sustainable culture that is culturally competent, that considers these factors? Well, we have to make sure that we input cultural competency and that we uplift this and really express its importance and stress it into our training curricula that we have. So that means the curriculum that we, the curricula that we have within different pharmacy schools, but also when we think about postgraduate training. So that's where a lot of times the things that are not able to be provided in detail in pharmacy school, where we're, ever, where we're able to integrate these experiences. We have to prioritize those factors because at the end of the day, we have to, we have to make sure that we build these, these practitioners and these clinicians that we wanna see in the future. But more importantly, we as pharmacists, we have a responsibility to provide culturally competent care. And this has really been expressed to us, right, by APHA. We know that there's been a modification on AAC, AACP as, there, as there's been a modification to our oath of a pharmacist. So now our oath of a pharmacist stresses how important it is for us to embrace diversity and to advocate for justice and health equity. So how do we do that? Well, we create these experiences where the students can really go ahead and see what health equity looks like. We create these tangible experiences. And we have to also hold ourselves accountable to ensuring that we ourselves are culturally competent, that when we address patients, that we are empathetic and we take in, we take in all of the historical context that may attribute to different, um, different hesitancies that we may see across the patients. And then education. When we think about education, when we think about pharmacists, pharmacists, we as pharmacists, we as scientists, are stewards of scientific information, and we are able to provide factual, viable, and then evidence-based information for patients to go ahead and make the decisions on receiving the COVID-19 vaccines. But I think one very, very important thing about pharmacists is that we're able to translate in a way that everyone can understand. I think that's something that we learn and something that I work very hard to make sure that I, treat my, that I teach my students as we continue to move along. Because it's one thing to have all of this knowledge, right? That's very important. But it's another thing to, to break it down and be able to explain it in a way in which people can easily consume it. And we, we as pharmacists are well positioned to do that. We can also develop tools to ensure that we can promote vaccine uptake across our patients. So when we think about tools, we can create pamphlets, one-page handouts, so on and so forth. 
And then you don't have to create them yourself as they are available to us. So the APHA um, Learning Collaborative for Vaccine Confidence is one that exists and is easily and readily accessible on the internet and actually free to those people that are not members as well. And what it does is it really tailors how it is that we're, we should communicate with the public regarding vaccine uptake, scientific information, vaccine schedules, a really great place to, to go to and a really great resource. But the collaborative was developed by APHA in collaboration with the CDC to guide education on vaccine confidence and made specific to pharmacists. So it explores different hes hesitancy and strategies for uptake. And it, what it does, and I really love that it really caters to racial, racially and ethnically minoritized groups because they make sure that they provide, that they have experts from very different areas, those in academia, those that are clinical, those that are in the community. And by having these diverse perspectives, we're really able to see what is it that the, that the vaccine landscape currently looks like and what am I supposed to do when I end up with a patient that may not want to receive the vaccine and how do I have those tools to make sure that this is something that they consider. And then when we think about how is it that we put the education and then the, the other components into practice, well, advocacy. I think that advocacy is just the most important thing and as someone that is a bit newer in the profession, I don't know, I guess I'm in that weird middle ground. But when I think about just advocacy, I've really, I've really seen how important and how well pharmacists do advocate, especially in this sense. So it's important for us to talk about just the removal of barriers, but who's gonna bring these things up? We're so closely acquainted with the community, it's easy for us to say, this is what we're currently seeing in our community, these are the ways that we can mitigate this. And we have so many different avenues now to advocate. We have Twitter, and if you all are not on Twitter RX, I would advise you to do so, right? It's a fun place to be, but a big place for advocacy. We have, and while those public health officials are not necessarily accessible because of social media, they have become more accessible to us. So there are things that we can do to make sure that we promote awareness surrounding just the inequities that we as pharmacists see. I do want to take this time to talk about a, a different advocacy measure that I saw and I thought that it was so important and just so great. So when we think about the National Pharmaceutical Association, they collaborated with the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists to create a document that really talked about, um, or a statement anyway, demanding equitable access for the COVID-19 vaccines. I was really excited to see the National Pharmaceutical Association here because I, let, I don't know if you all are aware, but it is a, it is a um, our pharmacy org that's really dedicated to uplifting and supporting minoritized voices. So the fact that they are so intimately acquainted with the limitations that do exist for vaccine uptake, I was really excited that they use their voice in that matter to advocate there. And then the Society of Infectious Diseases being so well positioned to talk about how pharmacists contribute in that space, I felt that collaboration was one of magic, but then that advocacy was one that was very essential to what it is that public health professionals needed to hear in terms of why it is that we needed a vaccine scenes there, but also a really good thing that they talked about in this statement was how it is that pharmacists are working on the ground to ensure that this is reality and how we will continue to work in this way, but the support that we need from the government to ensure that we can continue to work in this way. Because all of these things, they require monetary allocation. 
And I think that, that is just essential and such an amazing way to see this here. And they didn't stop here. So MPHA and SIDP continue to collaborate to issue another statement in terms of the equitable access to the COVID-19 oral antivirals, and then also collaborated with ACCP to ensure that this was something that was made a reality. And we can all celebrate the fact that now pharmacists are those that are listed as prescribers within that EUA for the oral antivirals. So a really big place and really big movement for pharmacy, but also we can see just advocacy in action, what it is that advocacy can do. And then finally, action. Action to me is really just our most important factor because it really combines all of those things, the cultural competency, the education, the advocacy, all of that is really just essential to how it is that we can develop concentrated actions to ensuring that we are able to promote vaccine uptake. And then I have just this example that I will um, provide regarding action, and I'm not providing it because I was a part of the study, right? So let's say that I don't have a vested biased interest, but I do want to describe um, the three-tiered approach that we developed for creating equitable COVID-19 vaccination access. So it was several tiers involved here, the first being engaging black faith leaders, and it was at the time directly for black communities, and then the delivery of COVID-19 vaccine education from a black pharmacist, and then finally the development of low barrier community vaccination clinics held right in black communities. So at Loma Linda University, we set out to develop a um, concerted effort that would increase vaccination rates amongst the black community. I just want to go ahead and provide just a bit of context there. When we, we previously had the largest vaccination site in San Bernardino County, for those of you that are not, a, are not familiar with California, San Bernardino County is the fourth largest county in um, Southern California. So very big, millions of individuals there. And Loma Linda ran the largest vaccine site there. So that that means that at any given day, we were doing between 1,000 and 1,900 vaccinations, so a lot of vaccinations there. But when we were doing these vaccines, we really thought about, well, are we hitting these communities that are being especially um, targeted or impacted by COVID-19? Well, when we looked at black individuals, they only represented about 3% of the vaccine, vaccinees that we had there. Hispanic individuals represented far less than what it is that we saw was the burden in our hospital. So with that being said, we, we decided, well, how can we increase these vaccine rates? Well, we go to the faith leaders, the community leaders, the trusted messengers within the community. When we think about the United States itself, the United States is a very highly religious nation globally, right? We, religion really runs a lot of things for globally and then right here in the U.S. Faith leaders occupy very large roles within minoritized communities. So we were able to go ahead and leverage existing relationships with two church organizations, that being the Inland Empire for Concerned African American Churches, where I will hear on after referred to as ICAC, and then the Congregations Organized for Prophetic Engagement, or COPE, to gain access to um, the black membership that they had there within that, within that constituency. So the past two, to put this into perspective, across these two organizations, we were able to target about 30 pastors, so about 30 churches or so. And then the faith leaders really, really were just so essential to what it is that we were able to do. They facilitated um, and organized platforms for us to disseminate the information, orchestrated major processes necessary for the vaccine clinics and so on and so forth. So it really has become such a beautiful partnership. So we began with the, with the development of COVID-19 educational town hall meetings. So one, 
we tapped into the cultural competency factor because we really wanted to target black and then eventually Hispanic Latino communities. But what we knew was that racial concordance is a factor in ensuring that we're able to promote adequate healthcare. So when we thought, when we thought about racial concordance, when it came down to the individuals that we really made a part of this effort, well, if you'll see here in this photograph, it's myself. So I'm a black woman, I'm a pharmacist. We also have another black woman there. She's a psychologist and then we have um, our kind of leader there, the Assistant Vice President for Community Engagement, or Dr. Juan Carlos Belliard. So he's, he identifies as Hispanic Latino. So we wanted to be intentional about how it is that we showed racial concordance to build trust. So that was the cultural competency factor. So then we went ahead and we leaned into the education component, because we know that can be a limitation, right, in the uptake of vaccines, not knowing how it is the vaccines work, not knowing how individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups were accounted for in those clinical trials. So that's what we really work very hard to do within these town halls. But then we have various professions represented. So I'm responsible for providing the scientific information, but we start the presentation with a, with a presentation from the psychologist. So Dr. Bridget Petit, who has become my research partner. And I think when we think about vaccine uptake and vaccine hesitancy, it's really more of a behavioral standpoint that we have to take than anything. So I'm very, I'm privileged to have her, to collaborate with her in that capacity. But then also she does a survey to kind of look at, well, where are we with the landscape of vaccine uptake before we provide this presentation? And then where are we with the, with the landscape of vaccine uptake afterwards? So when we start the presentations, we're usually at generally like 70%. And that means that individuals will receive this vaccine without having received any information from us. Well, then we were able to see that after we provide information, we're able to go ahead and increase that number from those that would be interested to receive the vaccine to about 90%. So very essential here. And we can see just the importance of the positioning of racial concordance once or cultural competency and just that delivery of education. We continue to be intentional. So when we created this low barrier format, we realized, you know what, vaccine hesitancy is not our only limitation here. But we were to combat the vaccine hesitancy with providing factual information. Well, now we're in the place where we have to make sure we're removing the barriers that may be present there. So misinformation, we've gotten that, we've got that covered. But then also when we do the vaccine clinics, I'm there on site at the clinics as an information resource. But then we also have the students that are integrated into our pharmacy clinics, and then they all are aware of the information it is that we want to provide to our patients. So we have several sources of factual-based information access. So we actually, it's, it's mobile in the fact that we mobilize ourselves and put our places right there and put ourselves right there at the churches. But what we really work hard to do when we, when we target these churches is we want to find those churches that are really easy to access via different modes of transportation. So we find different hubs where we can have people of different churches come to and attend these vaccine clinics. And then that transportation, um, that transportation issue and just the access issue, which I'll go a bit more into more into as we progress through, but more importantly, we actually take the vaccines there and put them in the community so they don't have to worry about having to find an individual or find a pharmacy where they can receive the vaccines. And I will say that we've gone to different rural areas and it's been very interesting to look outside the window and for 20 miles not see anywhere where these individuals could go receive a vaccine. So no pharmacies, nothing's there. So it's been really just essential and really important to really understand those factors. 
So the, the clinic workflow is one that is also really rooted in equity because it's important that as, you, as we are rolling out these things that we go back and we consider, is every single step delivered in the most equitable fashion. So with, with our vaccine clinics that we created to promote equity, the clinics are conducted either indoors or outdoors, but we use this same setup format for each and every clinic, but we root it, once again, like I said, in an equity-based fashion. So we have individuals at the registration desk, so we actually integrate individuals of the community into these, um, into these clinics in this way. So we may have different individuals that may um, be healthcare workers and they, and they go to the churches, so then we ask them if they would like to go ahead and assist with registration. Registration is very straightforward. We provide a script, but um, it's a paper-based form, so they're very, they're very um, laid out instructions on what to do there. And then for our vaccinators, we try to really integrate students here. Not we try, the clinics are primarily student-run, and we really integrate them into this here because as I stated previously, we have to build a sustainable infrastructure of equity. How do we do that? We train students to be equity-minded professionals. And then in the vaccine draw area, I, like as I said, some of my students are here and I'm very excited they are, but they oftentimes work in that vaccine draw area. But I think what's been so great to see is not only the School of Pharmacy students that are able to work, but also the School of Medicine students. So we've begun to integrate them in the vaccine draw area as well, because we recognize that not many medicine students learn this throughout their curricula. So now we create, one, we have that early exposure to collaboration, but then two, we're creating professionals that can work in very different capacities. Because who knows, and you know, we pray that this isn't the case, but we have to be ready for each and every epidemic, pandemic, endemic that exists. And then um, in our checkout area, we once again, we work to include community health workers, individuals from the church that you know, go through the patient's chart, make sure everything's filled out. And then um, we also include different healthcare professionals, so maybe nurse practitioners. We've had EMTs that have come for the checkout. So really just integrating and creating a, a culture of familiarity. But in these clinics, we also make sure to have myself there at each and every one, and I transport the vaccines. And this really aids to one, creating just that increased atmosphere of trust. But then two, we have Dr. Petit, who is also there at the clinics. She may conduct surveys, but it's important that we have that, that spirit of continuity to where individuals of the community continue to see us, but then they can also see we are also equally as invested in the community. And then, you know, we have Dr. Belliard in his office. Have, they've continued to be involved as well. So now we have our integration of professional students into the clinic. I touched on this briefly, but I just can't stress how important it is that we integrate students into this culture. It's very easy, I believe, to go ahead and really push um, push and push its importance on already practicing professionals, but it's just as essential that we have those professionals that are in training invested in this as well. I, build, I feel that it really just creates um, that air of having just tangible experiences that show the importance of health equity. An example of this would be when we had the Johnson & Johnson, um, the, the, rec the temporary recall anyway of the, of the vaccines or hold on providing the vaccines. We had just gone um, and provided um, about 300 or so Johnson & Johnson vaccines within the community. And I'd already planned, I'd already reached out to the pastors and you know made this, this um, 
and gave them factual information just in case they had patients come and ask them about it. But I had a student come up to me and she was just out of sorts. She really wanted to make sure that the community knew about this whole and that they were prepared and that we ensured that they were all safe. And I thought that was just so amazing that she became that invested. And it was really because she had that exposure into that community vaccination clinic. So of course, did it happen if you don't have measurable outcomes? So this was um, this table that you all see here was from our first vaccination clinic that we had. So we had about, um, and I wanna compare, and you can see a comparison from our mass vaccination clinics and then that mobile vaccination clinic. So the number that you see there for the mass vaccination clinics, that was from our like first three months of really getting off the ground there. And we had vaccinated about 17,000 individuals. But then when we think about that, there were only about 500 individuals or, or so that were that were black and we were really trying to we were really working to increase vaccine uptake within the black community with that particular clinic well when we went ahead we did our clinic we did the town hall with the racially concorded providers we then went ahead and I, I brought the vaccines we had the students there we really tried to draw on those four pillars that I talked about we were able to vaccinate 300 excuse me 420 individuals and of that 420 351 were black individuals so we had 83.4 percent that were a part of that population that we were trying to target and increase vaccination rates within so very important very essential there where we see concentrated measures or cultural competency education advocacy and action can go ahead and do for vaccination rates in racially and ethnically minoritized communities so now we've gone on and we've done a number of vaccine clinics. To date, we've provided over 3,000 vaccines to individuals of racially and ethnically minoritized groups. And I would like to just express upon our reproducibility. So while I talked about the black community in that first slide, now we've gone ahead and we've really gone, we've really tapped into our Latino Latinx community. Once again, if you all are not familiar with, with California and the area in which San Bernardino County, it is, it is almost majority um, Hispanic or Latino. So we were really, we wanted to go ahead and, and go into that community. This is our first, um, this was our first clinic. So we always do two clinics if we're doing the two dose vaccines. And uh, we had 258 individuals that we vaccinated with a first dose of the Moderna vaccine. In our second clinic, we were able to see a 97, 98% return rate, 253 individuals represented. And I would like to highlight that that was the place in which I saw that there was not a pharmacy for 30 miles. So us bringing those vaccines there was very important because where else would the community have received them? And we can see how important it was because we had so many people show back up for that second vaccine. We've also gone forward and done Johnson & Johnson vaccine clinics, and then we've moved on and done several other vaccine clinics within the Hispanic Latino community. Thank you so much for listening in today. For more resources on incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion into your practice, visit ashp.org backslash DEI. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more episodes that feature the ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting Programming 2022. Until then, this is Vicki Masculina from ASHP Official, and thank you for listening.